Here we are, another fine edition of Play It Like It's Music, musicians in their own words. Today we're talking with a legit songwriting giant, Richard Julian. You might know his super group, The Little Willies, or his solo albums like Slow New York or Fleur de Lis. He hangs out with the likes of Bonnie Raitt, Randy Newman, and Nora Jones. And he's got a more recent project. He runs his own club. I met him there at Bar Lunatico in Brooklyn, a classic style music joint with a great menu, ridiculous margaritas, and a nightly assortment of the most interesting and sought-after musicians on the scene. Let's hear from Richard. She threw the fork across the table. The check please made a D. And when the bill came out, you know they handed it to me. I said the way this is going, it's gonna wipe me out clean. She said this river goes Use more ice, by the way, Tim. I think that thing is fixed down there. Yeah. Ice is like a whole world. And when that wheel stops spinning, the whole joint began to scream. Now I'm living fat and happy with my baby down in New Orleans. Let's go upstairs and do this interview. You got music every night. Every night. And uh, it doesn't look like vacation is in my future, which is kind of a drag. Twenty my removing your shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah, live yeah. with an Italian. Just to get started, state your name and instrument. I'm Richard Julian. I play guitar, piano, and sing. Awesome. And we are uh, sitting here at Bar Lunatico in Brooklyn, which is your place. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Italian? No one ever pronounces it correctly, but you just did. Yeah, it's Italian. Or actually, since we put the accent over the A, I'm told that that makes it Spanish. But we only did that to help people pronounce it correctly, which they don't. It didn't help. Awesome. And you said you lived in this neighborhood since 2004? Yeah, 2005 maybe, somewhere back in the mid-aughts, as they call it. Yeah. Where'd you live before? I lived in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. I lived there since 1986 in various places around 9th Avenue. And then I moved out here and bought a brownstone with a couple of other musicians and renovated it, condoed it, and then... That condo I sold and bought this over here to open up Lunatico. Why do you play music? Wow. The answer to why I play music has changed over the years, I guess. Man, I, I don't even know the answer now. I think of music as language. When I'm playing music, if I'm performing, what I'm thinking about is the relationship of what I'm doing to the audience and with the band members. We're off the computer, we're off the phone, we're off all of that, and we're just having a conversation. And I guess that it is a departure from all of that other really predictable conversation that you just... It's a way to escape the dull drum of everything else and to create something that... To create another you know, portal, another prism to look at things through. But there's other reasons. I mean, there's, you know... 
probably somebody would hear me answer like that and find it a little pretentious. Like some people would say, oh, because you like the attention, <laughs> you know, and you, <laughs> you like, you know, being in front of people. And that's true, too. You know, when I first got involved and came to New York, I came to New York like, you know, John Voight and Midnight Cowboy. I was, you know, going to be a star. It's like New York City. Here I am, you know, and, and like, you know, I didn't have any of these pretenses about music. Um, I loved music and always went to hear music. Music was just embedded in me very early, probably because of my mom. So yeah, there's all those egocentric reasons too. There's, you know, there's a ton of reasons for it, but at this stage of my life, you know, what am I looking for when I book a gig? If people don't come, I'm not as disappointed as I used to be. I'm happy there's some people there to have that conversation with. It doesn't matter. If it's 10 people, I'll probably have to work a little harder to make the room feel as elevated as I want it to feel. If there's tons of people there, I probably don't have to work as hard. The audience does some work for you in helping the energy, you know, lift up to unify everybody. So, you know, that's all. That's it. What was the first time you ever played music starting out? The first time I ever played music, I don't know what that, what that would be. I know that my grandmother had an upright piano at her house in North Carolina. They had a farmhouse. My mom grew up on the farm, sharecropper's daughter, and they had an upright piano, and my sister used to hit it a lot. We pretended that we were the carpenters, you know, Richard Carpenter, so she would have me play, which I really couldn't do, and then she would pretend to sing, you know, like Karen Carpenter. I love to sing. I always, my mom's a big music fan, loves songs a lot, especially. She loves bluegrass and country, especially. Anything that has a narrative that tells a story or has a lyrical content, which is probably, I'm just guessing why I ended up in that area, you know, of, of music. And then we got lessons. My dad found us a teacher up in the neighborhood where we lived in Delaware. And me and my sister both started lessons. She was, I think, nine and I was six. So I started lessons and learning how to play the furry lease or, you know, the entertainer, whatever sheet music was being shopped around in the stores at those days. So it was piano first? Piano first, yeah. I played piano. I did that. I took those lessons for about three years and then I quit. And then I came back to it because we had a piano and my mom decided to get it tuned. It hadn't been tuned in years. And when the piano tuner came to tune it, he was checking the tuning after he'd done tuning it. And he was just playing, you know, uh, without any music in front of him. And as kind of dumb as this sounds, that was a revelation to me. I said, did you memorize that music? How, How did you memorize that? He said, oh, I'm just improvising. And I said, what's improvising? You know, I didn't know what that meant. And he said, I'm just, I'm making it up. I'm just, you know. And so I said, can you do that? You can just play songs. You just hear them and you play them. And I asked him if he could play, I think, Hey Jude or something. I said, do you you know how to play Hey Jude? And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, and he played like a piano rendition of Hey Jude. And I was just, I thought, wow, I can't believe that anybody can do that. And so that got me really interested again. And I asked him how I could learn to do it. And he said, get this book. And it was some book on theory. I can't remember what it was called, but I went and bought it immediately, and it didn't help me at all. I was way over my head, but it got me to asking my parents about, you know, saying, hey, I really want to do this. And so we found a new teacher. I went back to the teacher, actually, the one that taught me the entertainer. She's an old lady up in the neighborhood, and she said, okay, you want to improvise. It's out of my skill set. And she tried to help me find another teacher, and and she did. And that teacher really helped me out a lot. He was a guy that lived up the street. 
and he was a jazz pianist, and he helped me tremendously, in fact. And there was another teacher, Judith Kay, a guitarist that lived in the neighborhood that helped me get my theory going and all of that shit. So Was there a place where you just got into it? Immediately. But I've always been like that. I'm a fast mover. I'm even, you know, with the business here that I run, I'm even too fast sometimes for my partners and I, I make stupid decisions sometimes and and barrel barrel full steam ahead you know um and this was no different like you know as soon as I understood how to play a minor c you know just anything that was a blank canvas as opposed to having to read off sheet music as soon as I understood what that shit was I was like I'm a musician I'm a songwriter and I started writing songs I was about 13 and I already had you know five or six songs even before I started high school I had tunes that I could play on piano and they were my songs really stupid silly songs I and I I wrote I wrote you know they were very serious they were always they they tried they you know tried really hard to be profound and and to encapsulate the world you know I wrote some of them with a a guy that I hung out with a lot you know my good friend we wrote them together and then we started bands and did all of this kind of stuff this entry into the music life uh, how does it compare with this process you've been going through like becoming a venue owner and proprietor of of an establishment that's a whole other skill set that's a vast question that would take so long to really answer properly. I'll do my best <laughs> with the little bit of time that we have. Um, both are equally creative endeavors, for sure. Running the bar, creating the bar, and creating the atmosphere there. I just want to interrupt for the listener's benefit that this particular bar is definitely a work of art in terms of the decoration you see, the music curation, the sound system, the way the stage is set up. All of that is clearly put together in a very thoughtful and mindful way, much more so than than most music venues, let alone most bars. Thank you for for those compliments. You know, the decor in the bar is mostly Rosita. I was kind of the facilitator of a lot of her ideas. She's the kind of person to be like, oh, we need this type of lamp, but she doesn't really know how to get that type of lamp in there and hung in the right spot and blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of the guy that conveyed that to people to make it happen. And then we also have another partner, Arthur Kell, who has been incredible with some of the booking. Between the three of us, we we bring a lot of diverse influences into the actual booking. But probably where me and Rosie and, and maybe more me in, in terms of this particular aspect was I've always been very particular about the things that I drink and eat. And as, you know, I'm, I'm a musician, I love to hear live music more than most musicians that I know, actually. Most musicians love to play live music, but you won't see them out at another show. I'm like, I play my show, then I'm off to two other shows. I, I can never get enough of feeling enveloped by improvisation, just like the guy came to tune the piano. It's just like, since that moment, I've always wanted to be in that moment of watching something get created. So has that always been the case? Oh, yeah. Have you ever experienced like burnout or anything? No, no, not even now. And I hear live music every single night in my bed. I mean, it leaks up through the heat pipes. My kid goes to sleep with sousaphone coming up through his through his heat pipes. No, it never burns me out. The only thing about it that I don't like is that I have become less of a writer, less of a composer. I was thinking about this very topic last night because I came home with a really good song idea, but I didn't have my keys to go in through the residential side of my building. So I had to go through the bar and there was some really great jazz playing and I saw some friends and I thought I don't want to lose this idea that I want to start so that did prove to be disruptive where I know if I was going home to a quieter environment and less about somebody else's music I probably would have gotten a lot more work done last night I'm still trying to figure out how to 
get back to that. But I think also having a kid was probably more profoundly disruptive of that process than the bar because a kid really demands your attention all the time, you know. Up until this point, uh-huh. what do you say have been your peak writing periods? Oh, man, I don't like to think about that. You know, I'd like to think that there's peaks in front of me. It doesn't... Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That, there's definitely yeah. peaks in front of you. Yeah. But just looking back and... What do you say, like, uh, up, up until this point in the show? <laughs> yeah, it, it depends on how you, how you look at all of that. I was telling you before that I wrote since I was 13, and when I was in high school writing all those songs that I would never dream of playing you right now, I just, I just wouldn't dare do it. I, um, I wrote a lot of them, though. I wrote a lot of them. By the end of high school, I don't know how many songs I had. I'm sure back then I knew exactly how many. I'd be like, I've written 51 songs or something. <laughs> but, you know, I... I had a lot of songs, and then when I first moved to New York, and even when I lived in Vegas for a little while, because I was playing keyboards out there for about a year, I just wrote songs constantly. And in my early 20s, a day didn't go by where I didn't work on music. I had a typewriter. This is all pre-computer. I had one of those old typewriters. I used to sit at the typewriter, go work on the guitar, have the baseball game on, watch a little baseball, get up, play guitar, get to the typewriter, watch a little baseball, just go around in a circle like that, clean my house smoke a joint, which I don't do anymore, but that that was the process from about the time I was 19 till maybe I was 26 or 27. I wrote a lot and a lot of, you know, shitty stuff, stuff that I look at now. And at the time I'm writing it, it felt like, wow, this is great. I'm really connecting. And, you know, I look at it now and it doesn't impress me except for rarely here and there. I'm like, oh, nice. I have a song called John and Florine that I still play. I think I wrote that. I would have been the winter of 89, so I would have been 22. And I still think that's a really great song. You know, I feel great about it when I'm playing it in front of people. There was moments where it all really, you know, congealed and was more mature than I actually was, you know, like just kind of stumbled on stuff that advanced me as a person or as a writer. Like what are your influences just on an instrumental level? Instrumentally, I don't really have that many influences. The influence on my guitar mostly comes from working really hard on each song. And what happens is when you play a song 100 times, 200 times, 300 times over the course of two months that you're working on it, you stumble on things on guitar. You make mistakes. You come up the neck and you realize that, you know, there are resonant strings on the bottom that connect with what you're doing high. And it starts to make you wonder if you really need to have a bar or it starts to make you wonder if you capoed up high and played bellish. You know, like I did a song last last record about Galileo, and it's called Secret of the Stars. And I think I capo on the ninth fret, maybe, or 10th fret. I do a lot of that, a lot of high capoing. I tune my strings way down and use thick strings so that the neck won't get too tight and that the thick strings will sound really bellish. You know, like sound like bells when I'm playing high. I won't sound chintzy or, or, or cheap. So I do this song, Secret of the Stars. And if you look at the structure of it, strictly as a chord chart, I guess it would just be one, six, four, five, or one, six, two, five, maybe. I haven't played it in a while, so I'm just kind of, you know, it's one, four, five with a six here and there. But if you hear the guitar part, 
it will not sound that basic. And one of the reasons is after getting the initial idea of a tune, even if I'm playing really basic, you know, chord changes, like, okay, here's a G, here's a C, here's a D. At some point, I want to find the proper register for my voice. So there's a little explorative process that goes there. And then bigger than that, I want to move the guitar as far out of the way of the register of my voice as possible, which is hard to do because a guitar is a, has a big range. You know, you got six strings that are all fighting for a lot of sonic range. So I like to put the guitar way below the voice or way over the voice. And I like the voice to be filling a sonic space. And if I think of the recording that I might eventually make, it's going to have bass or, or a or a low instrument if it's not bass, or, you know, just filling all that sonic space. I think of a I think of a portrait, like a, a visual portrait of sound, and my voice is just filling one of those spaces uninterrupted by anything else. Since we're talking shop, is it possible to get it out and maybe go have the instrument? Let's see here. Now, now I have to remember how to play it. <laughs> I haven't played this song in a while, but pretty sure it's an A flat. And since I'm tuned down a half step, that would mean if I'm playing in C, I want to get my, you know, root there. That's, that's an E flat. And all that does is release the tension a little bit because I'm using very thick strings. This is a 13. So if I had this tuned all the way up to pitch, the guitar would feel very tight. Right. Some people would like that, but I don't. And what it does is it helps me do things up here. So like I have this tune called Window, for instance, like. That sounds really, you know, that sounds fat up there. That's a 13 string. And so, and plus the rosewood, this is all rosewood, so it has a deep sound. But if I played this, if I played this same thing on a Gibson Hummingbird or something that had maple or something that had mahogany and it was tuned, normal tuning, and it had light strings the way that a, uh, most people do their guitar, this would not sound as majestic as, as to me it sounds. Like I was telling you about that tune, Galileo. Gal yeah, I'll play it for you basically. So I'm in A flat, right? So the tune starts out down here because I'm just getting the idea for the, for the tune. And here I'm in, you know, where's A flat? So I was probably down here just playing in G. Galileo, Galilei, slept through the day, a rough night out under the stars. It's just like a little Irish tune or something, you know. Galileo with a with not as great a melody. <laughs> Galileo in his long bearded way was working himself much too hard in search of a key to the galaxy. Some minute he hoped would prove true. Poor sap put himself through all that. What he needed was a lover like you. So that might help me get a good lyric idea, you know, because it's got a folk song and we've all heard those folk songs. They're familiar, they're embedded in us. So I'm, I might get a cool lyric strumming something like that. But to me, to get out in front of an audience and play that is just boring. I mean, it, it just bores me to tears, you know? You know, I just, I'm not into that. Also in the way of my voice, da-da-da-da. 
Oh well. Anyway, that's all super inside of all of these chords. So your vocals just swimming in this sea of strumming, you know. So I come up here. I go, okay, I want my voice to be down there, and I want the guitar to be up high. So I come up and go up to see Galileo, Galileo, slept through the day, a rough night, out under the stars. Galileo, Galileo, in his long bearded way, was working himself much too hard. So that helps separate sonically where the voice is laying, where the guitar is laying. Then you still have this problem of the, you know, boring strumming. Um, I love to use a capo because you can do things like, there's a C chord, but you can also play it here, which I think doesn't have a third, or it does up here. But some of these are repeats. Uh, we'll let the sirens go by. So Welcome cool. to New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, so listen to that. So I'm playing what would normally be a bar. A lot of people play that C inversion. That's an A, that's I think called a second position bar when you're doing an A. But I'm taking off the bar and allowing these to resonate against. So I'm creating two pedals. There's two G's, two E's, and the root on the bottom. Sounds just kind of pretty and sort of like a little music box or something. And then once you find these uh, spots, I love pedals, like strings that rub against each other. They're slightly out of tune with each other. So the tune ended up going. Galileo, Galileo, slept through the day, rough night, out under the stars. Galileo, Galileo, in his long bearded way, was working himself much too hard. In search of a key to the galaxy, some theory he hoped would prove true. Poor sap put himself through all that. What he needed was a lover like you. Galileo's the one who first claimed the sun is the center of everything else. Oh, but the powers that be threw down this decree. Ye keep that shit to thine self. No, 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 you know, on onwards like that. But that's the guitar part out of you know, awesome. out of those. So. You go through this process of, you know, you create a lyric in one kind of zone. Shorthand is like, maybe that's the most comfortable place for that type of yeah. development. And then once you have the lyric, it's like, let's move into phase two, where mm -hmm. it's like create a performance, create an arrangement, yeah. and then all bets are off and you can sort of move things well, around based be, on their utility. Just to be clear, I'm probably at phase two still working on the lyric. I'm always working on the lyric. Even after I recorded the song, I have a weird OCD about lyrics and I just keep working on them. The first process, stage one, as you put it, 
gets the nucleus of the story out or inspires the story. And then stage two, I'm still working on the lyric and those sounds and that feeling inspire the lyric to evolve because maybe some of the lyrics you had that were more to the Irish sort of strum sound too belligerent against something that's more delicate. So that might evolve. And I also might go to the piano, figure it out on piano and play it on piano for a while just to create another dimension, another portal, another place to get through to the lyric and have a different feeling and allow other feelings to come through. And this is all before anyone hears the song, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a pretty standard process you go through? Almost with all the songs. I mean, you... The, the best case scenario, which is the rarest scenario, as, as always in life, is you write the song really quickly. You know, you get a lyric and the next thing you know, you've got three verses and an idea for a bridge and it's really solid. That doesn't happen to me almost ever, but it does occasionally happen. I'm, I wrote a tune one time just standing in line at the post office, you know, which the post office out here is pretty bad. So that's actually not that much of an accomplishment. <laughs> but for but for, for me, it was, you know, I mean, that's I was like, wow, I just walked into the post office and I came out and I had this song. Even with that, there is going to be this guitar, this instrumental process that is going to go through a few phases to bolster that lyric and to find the proper melody and find all of that stuff, you know? Right. So about that process, mm-hmm. what's your process around like getting it ready for the world. I love that book that Steve Martin wrote about doing stand-up comedy and about all the all the things that are in your way, all the all the ways that it can go wrong, you know, because of an audience. You know, just some dickhead can come into the place you're playing and make your life miserable, you know. But I did this record called Sunday Morning and Saturday Shoes. And while I was writing those tunes, I was booking steady gigs at the Rockwood Music Hall, which was only room one at that point. And I'm just trying them out week after week. That was super helpful. Some of those things happened. Sometimes if you really wanted to hear how a song was going to go, something interrupted it. and You would have to wait till next week to see if you really had something. It is a funny thing. You can tell right away often if what you're doing is connecting as soon as you're in front of any other person, any other human being, even a non-music fan, you can just kind of sense the veracity of what you've put into the tune when you're being spied on by another human being. You're in this process alone, and as soon as you break it out, suddenly it's like, oh, that thing I have in there is bullshit. It feels like bullshit when I sing those words in front of somebody. It feels forced when I go to this modulation. This feel, I have to work on those moments to make them feel more natural or as if they belong. N- not just belong in the song, but belong in the world. That's really what you're looking for. How does the process adapt to being on the road? Can you write on the road too? Oh, yeah. I love writing on the road. I get a lot of writing done on the road, and uh, I get way more writing done than I do in New York. I haven't really had any substantial period of writing in New York since Sunday Morning and Saturday Shoes. I wrote those tunes around 2007, so it's been about a decade since I've you know been on fire with the writing in New York City itself. And even before that, it had been probably another decade because I wrote most of Slow New York you know, on the road and in Nashville. Did very little of it in New York, which is, I know it's funny, it's Slow New York, but I wrote so much of it in Nashville. The song Slow New York was an earlier song though I had written in New York in like maybe the early 90s or something. New York is tough. It's getting tougher because I have a bar downstairs that I I run and it's chaos here. It's really hard to get the peace of mind 
two songs on Sunday Morning and Saturday Shoes, the title track and Can't Go Back, which were the first two songs I had written for that record. I left town, booked myself in a hotel way up north near the Adirondacks for about three days, just this you know shitty hotel next to a putt-putt course with my friend Lee Alexander. He booked one room, I booked another, and all we did was work on songs, not together, separately, and then got together for coffee in the morning, dinner at night, and I did nothing but write all day long for about three or four days to kind of get my writing flow back. And then once it's back, I feel like I could write in a crowded room. I could write at a cocktail party if my head is in the space of crafting lyrics or whittling down something. I did it again last April. I booked a place in Oaxaca with the idea of going down there to write, but then I went down there and there was all these mezcal you know, bars. And, and I also carry this really good mezcal here at the bar. And I met with the distributor and he wanted to take me out to the, to the agave farms. And I just ended up just drinking mezcal the whole time and, and going to watch it get produced, which was, which was a whole nother super spiritual experience. I, I really love agave a lot. Sometimes almost more than music, just the mystery of agave is, is something that really fascinates me. Um, the process of it, how long it's just like songwriting, you know, some of the plants, unlike wine, which rejuvenates every year, agave, you plant something and don't even dig it up for sometimes up to 20 years, anywhere between six and 20 years, depending on the agave varietal. And that, that process really holds a lot of fascination for me. So, you know, I, I blew off my writing to go get in touch with that, but yeah, you know, that's a good thing. It's something I should do soon, maybe, is get all the, you know, go up with all these ideas. I didn't go up empty-handed to the hotel. I went, I had tons of ideas, tons of notes, just wasn't getting any work done. Unlike a sculptor, for instance, like, if you were a sculptor, if you were a Cellini or, you know, or, you know somebody from that time, I, I don't know if you ever read the Cellini autobiography, but he would get commissioned to do a sculpture. Maybe it would be made out of wood or out of crystal or you know out of metal or something like that and the first thing he had to do was go procure a block of wood a block of metal you know like whatever it is that he was going to be carving with songs there's nowhere to go get that i mean there's musical information there's music theory but you're just basically trying to draw something out of the air so the hardest part of the process for me is actually procuring the materials to make the thing so if I went up to the hotel, it was to create a bunch of prototypes to basically create material to then write off of. That was the idea. And I can't get that kind of headspace in New York City. So, What should a young player avoid completely, not waste their time with? Oh, man. I would never give advice to a young musician, any advice because I didn't follow anybody's advice. And you know I didn't even follow people's advice when they told me not to open this bar. Everybody will tell you what not to do, what to avoid, but you should just follow your own instincts. You should follow whatever, whatever voices are in your head that are recurring. You know, when, when you keep having the same idea over and over again that you should do something, that means you're supposed to do it. That's your instinct telling you do this and don't let anybody tell you to do it any differently and if you actually follow through on your instincts you probably find out that some people that were naysayers were correct you know some, you meet you find out your own limitations some people are right you know but who cares you know you, you it doesn't the information isn't valuable coming from someone else it doesn't provide you with any wisdom to carry forth the information you have to figure it all out by yourself 
Perfect. <laughs> Perfect answer. Richard Julian, thank you very much. Yeah, man. Thank you. It was fun. Those are good questions. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Like Vincent Van Glad Glad as a dog In the snow Oh She don't hold back She don't hold back Soft 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 Like a sweet How about Richard Julian? You can find him at richardjulianmusic.com. Now, go follow Barlunatico on Instagram at Barlunatico. Or better yet, just go there and sip on a mezcal while listening to somebody play. People still do that. It's a great spot. This is Play It Like It's Music. Feel the barometric pressure drop. Something's coming, but you don't know when or what. All you know is that she don't hold back. She don't, she don't hold back. All you know is that she don't hold back. No, she don't hold back. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It means everything to have your ears and support each time you pass the link to your friends, review us on the web, and help out financially. These are the players I admire the most, and as a working musician myself, I'm always looking to get to know them in a deeper way, find out stuff that might help me become a better musician. I love sharing these moments with you and reading your feedback and questions at our website, playitlikeitsmusic.com, where you can browse other episodes and support the show. We are 100% listener-funded. It's how we can have the conversation we need to have in an age when we're all contending with a mutating professional landscape, jacked revenue streams, and a lot of noise out there in the culture. These are exciting times. It's almost as if the simple act of playing an instrument is a revolutionary one. We don't draw any lines between scenes or styles. So if you haven't done it already, head over to the website and join the community. You can use PayPal or make a recurring pledge through Patreon, where we offer a selection of merch and rewards. As always, thank you for listening, and remember to play it like it's music. I'm Trevor Exeter. 